This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello, my name's John Schaefer and welcome to The Wealth Show from CityWire. Today I'm here with Ollie Creasy, Head of Property Research at Quilt Achievia. Ollie, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you for having me. Great stuff. So we've seen a few major open-ended property funds stopping redemptions due to mass pension outflows. Do you think more gating is to come? Um, so but before I answer that, maybe I'll just uh, tackle the, the question itself. Because um, you're right, there were some pretty, I think three large property funds have been named in the media as mm. um, as being um undergoing certain circumstances um and i think it may be just just clear it needs to be drawn that there is a distinction between the sort of what i think of as the the mainstream retail client open-ended property funds and those funds that are actually in question because they were sort of sort of pension specialists in, in a slightly different subset of the sector and clearly with um with a slightly different set of clients uh, and, and that's kind of why they the pension uh, drama was was probably what put those funds into into their situation that they found themselves in. Um, in terms of of gating, uh, it's a really hard question to to pin down an answer to. But I think the answer is um, well, first of all, I think it's fair to say that in in that um, market, it probably is only ever a matter of time before someone goes through a gating or suspension or or price adjustment scenario. Um, there's a there's, there's fewer funds than there were, but there's still a good sort of half a dozen or so and, and you know any anyone can suffer anything or they can be a market-wide thing um what i think is quite possible at this stage actually is is the sort of risk of um unintended contagion if i can maybe call it that you know it, we haven't seen it yet but to see articles like the ones published earlier in the week and and the, the headlines what we've seen happen in the past is some nasty headlines get published and and a lot of retail investors um, read the Sunday Times or whatever, and and, and panic on a Monday morning. Um, that that could happen again. Um, it hasn't quite happened yet, but I suspect it's it, it, there is a degree of that always will happen, and it's just a case of whether it's whether it's enough. Um, to get slightly deeper into it, do, do those funds have a sort of a fundamental problem with them right now? I think the answer is generally no. There's always there's always exceptions, but I mean I had a look at. Uh, a couple of the largest ones um, run by LNG and one run by Aberdeen um, about this time last week. Um, and both of the, so Aberdeen, I think, had about 15% of its assets in cash. And I think LNG had just over 20, if you include some um, some shares in some fairly liquid REITs that they own as well. So neither of those funds, for example, are going to be in immediate jeopardy if they see sort of 5%, maybe 10% come out. But but if they get to 10% um, of redemptions, then they are going to be saying, well, you know, what, what's going to happen on the day after? I suppose if they're holding such high cash, cash positions, they're feeling that, that there might be huge redemptions on the horizon well yeah i mean they're probably always feeling that i think what i would say is that the the industry standard is to be between 15 and 20 percent at all times so um they're probably not I, I wouldn't take that as a signal that they think right now is particularly dangerous i think that's just how they operate to kind of keep this risk to a minimum without 
being a cash fund. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. Let, let's hark back a little bit to, to the pension funds. I know you say there's quite a difference between the, the pension investor and the retail investors when it comes to these property funds. But but why have pension funds been selling off their pro- property allocation in particular? Uh, good question. Um, I, I'm not sure I fundamentally know the answer to it. Uh, not, a, not a market that I'm sort of in close contact with. Um, but, but I'm willing to speculate. Um, I mean, we, we know that the... Um, that the the chancellor's mini budget uh, created some some uh, shockwaves through the pension market, um, and we know that they were kind of dealing with um, sort of margin calls and, and those sort of things. Um, I dare say, at some point, they simply sort of went through the books and went, you know, give me a list of everything we own that is easy to sell and probably not structurally undervalued i.e you know let, let's say do a quick search for everything that's that's daily dealt and hasn't been down 30 percent year to date or, or down 20 percent or whatever number you might have picked because if they did that the property direct property investments would have probably featured near the top of the list um you know their year to date they're up uh i don't know maybe let's say three or four percent that's not a number i've got in front of me but that's a sort of a I think it's a sensible guess. Sure, but in a sea um, of red, that's that's okay, really, isn't it? Right, and 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 you're thinking to yourself, well, and and you know, to to sort of put some context on it, you know, if if the REIT index is down something like thirty five percent year to date, which is again approximately correct, um, and the actual property is up three or four, well, you're thinking, hang on a second, one of those things is over undervalued, um, or you know, some something's gone wrong in one of those markets, or hasn't happened yet. Um, and and you might well think, well, that's you know, property. Therefore, is is kind of on the block. Um, if if we if we just have to raise capital and, and put cash in a in a pile somewhere for for someone else's margin, then that's kind of an easy option. So, I I imagine that's the sort of conversation that's been happening. Um, obviously, with a bit more nuance to it, and uh, I don't know exactly how it's gone down, but I can easily imagine those sort of things being said. I want to come on to to reach a little bit later on, but um, I, I just wanted to look at. The, the debate over open-ended property funds, uh, again, I mean, this isn't the first time there have been problems in open-ended property funds. Is it time to put an end to these vehicles? Yeah, well, that's a, uh, that's a, it's a big question. Um, and, and I understand where it's coming from because you're not the first person to ask it. Um, but I, I think the answer, the short answer is possibly no with a big but at the end of it. Um, uh, because... I I think I maybe stand out a little bit in this environment by saying I, I think that these mark these these funds kind of have a place they have a role um, you know you, you you want property exposure without buying your own buy to let investment property as a, as a person as a retail investor and you've got two choices you can either go and buy into the REIT market through an index or picking a REIT yourself um, or you can go into an open-ended type vehicle like these or or maybe one that's quarterly dealt maybe one that's that's less frequent than, than that um, the, the closed-ended stuff on the REIT side or, or funds of REITs you know that that is that's fine as it's one way to go and we we buy a lot of them at Quartetivia but um, you know they come with volatility um, and they come with that sort of risk that on the day that you want to sell they could be up or down five percent, and and on the sort of month you want to sell, they could be up or down fifteen. Um, you know, you can't escape that um, that scenario, and and you kind of have to weather it. Those sorts of moves are, are just they just by and large don't happen in in the open ended property market. Um, and and you can see that, like I said, in those year to date numbers. Now, I I think we might well come on to what's what's going on there, but um, if you're holding the open ended funds right now. 
um, like you say, it's probably the highest performing subsector in your portfolio. Um, whether it really deserves to be is a slightly different question. But you know, you're looking at thinking it's 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 flat, it's it's up a little bit. Um, you know, where's the drama? It, it's not dramatic. It certainly isn't at the moment. And the drama, of course, is, is as you mentioned, liquidity is a it's an ever present risk in in the sector, and it's one that you can't eliminate we've we've seen people try and and no one's really succeeded and, and every five years or so there's an event that causes um you know widespread liquidity problems and in between there's probably a one-off event that affects one or two funds um it, my view is to to say to investors and I, I think funds should be better at this and i think the fca should maybe have have some say in it as well is to say look this is not simple this is not just hit give us your money and you can have it back whenever you want it's give it give us your money and we'll invest it well um and there's liquidity risk that comes with it you may ask your money back in in september and we'll try and give it back to you the day after but it might not come back to you immediately and and you have to understand that and you have to factor that into whatever you do you mentioned some of the, the the quarterly dealing do you think that maybe is a better standard uh, I don't mind it. I think it's probably got it's got its advantages. Um, I, I would what I, what I would sort of push back a little bit on is um, yeah, quarterly is probably about as far as I'd be willing to go. Um, we, we've seen the FCA talk about six monthly, and and what I think really needs to be sort of challenged with that is, is you know to give an example had you put in a sell order in December 2019, you'd have got your money back in June 2020 at a price that would have been or could have potentially been substantially different. You know, you think about every all the water that went under the bridge in that six month period, you, you'd have been biting your nails <laughs> throughout that six month period. Um, three months, you know, yes, it's a little bit quicker. It's less water that comes under the bridge. What I would say is that the funds themselves, they don't necessarily need that three months so so maybe what i would argue for um uh, and there's probably good reasons why i'm not a regulator but, but what i would argue for is that to say to say for the funds look try and get the money back to them in a day or a week um that should be plan a but people should be aware that there are no guarantees that you get it back earlier than say 90 days yeah um, and I, I think i mean the 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 three major funds that were mentioned earlier this week, I think they had a clause saying that it could be up to 24 months. And, and actually, I think at least one of them was a, was a quarterly dealing as well. The BlackRock fund yeah. certainly was a, a quarterly dealing as well. So, I mean, they're not immune either, seemingly. No, well, that's the, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, you can... Um, the funny thing about it is that actually a six-month um, six window wouldn't have wouldn't have protected anyone through the pandemic I, I mean there were definitely funds that were closed for more than six months right so um or, or at least certain sort of coming up to six months so they will they would have said i mean take um take agon for example that fund's been closed since uh late 2019 maybe early 2020 um and it's still in its sort of wind-up phase so you know it, it does it goes to show that there is no time limit where you can put down hand on heart and say, I promise that this will be successful and, and we will get you your money. Because if you're invested in the wrong asset or you just something's gone wrong that you may, maybe can't control, um, you know, things can move against you and you can't you can't control them. Um, so, yeah. I wanted to come back to the contagion you mentioned among retail investors and, and looking at the liquidity risk. I mean, do you think we could see some firms completely shutting down as a result? Um. 
I think the risk is, well, it, it's it's a growing risk, right? I think, um, and we work, in, I work in, in sort of very broad brush numbers at this point. Um, but I would say any fund that holds, you know, holds less than a billion pounds of assets is going to be, you know, querying whether it's it's sustainable right now. And if you were less than, let us say, 500 million, you'd be asking yourself the question quite seriously. Um, you know, what are we doing here? Is this fund just going to keep shrinking? Because that's what's happening. And that's why it's so dangerous is that every fund is sort of seeing one or two percent outflows a month, a quarter, whatever it is. And it's just sort of slowly shrinking. Um, and, and the managers there are sort of, they're selling assets, they're funding redemptions, and they're all sort of ticking over and getting by. But every now and then you take a look at your AUM and you think, gosh, it didn't used to be that small. Um, so so it is a risk. And we've seen um, you know, Janice Henderson sort of slightly opportunistically wound up their fund, arguably bigger than it, 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 bigger than it would have been sort of threatened itself, but they sort of sort of saw an opportunity and took it. Um, as I mentioned, the Aegon Fund has kind of been in a in a prolonged wind down for a little while. Um, I, I dare say those two won't be the only ones this cycle to to experience it, and, and especially that I think more and more people are talking about property values going down, not up. You know, yes. that's only going to exacerbate the problem. Obviously, the, the IMF waded in on this. Were, were you a bit surprised that they did? Um, a little, yes. Um, uh, I've never had any contact with the IMF. And, well, they didn't contact me either, but um, I've never seen the IMF um, make comment on, on the property fund sector mm. before. So that was a little bit of a surprise. Um, did it, I, I, did I, it seem <laughs> to be a bit out of their remit, to be honest? <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I don't really know where... The, where um, what it was about whether they feel like it's their jurisdiction or what i mean you know for the, the fca to, mm. to comment on uk property funds is not unusual but um i i was wondering if the imf just wanted to wanted to be part of the show uh or sure. something i don't i don't I really don't know <laughs> yeah that's fair enough um let, let's look at the sort of that the health of the uk property market i mean are you expecting to see some defaults in in the residential property market i mean Looks like mortgage rate mortgage rates are going to rise. Potentially some some significant um, property devaluations. I mean, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, um, uh, it's a, it's a really complicated market, far more so than, than the commercial market. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I think what I would say is that were you were you going through this sort of situation and scenarios in the commercial property market, the answer would be clearly yes. Um, and I don't think it's quite the same, by the way, this this sort of time around. So it, it isn't quite like like I can just say that for the commercial market. But the problem with the residential market is that it's it's it's, a, it's quite an emotional one. Um, people in a home, I, I, quite understandably, by the way, you know, may well choose to throw what a cold-hearted, rational investor might call good money after bad. Right? You know, if you are in a house that that appears to be um in negative equity and i do think that that's a a, a scenario that that is, is a real risk um certainly for people who've taken out really high ltv mortgages in the last sort of six months or so um it, it is a real risk and other people are going to say well we may not be in negative equity but i may not be able to afford the interest payments um that, that you know i thought was a was 300 quid a month um two years ago and now it's 900 quid you know that that sort of thing is going to make a real big change but like I say, it, it's there's people out there who've got 
plenty of, uh, of savings that they've built up from COVID and they didn't spend them all on summer holidays this summer. Um, and there's also a government which, I mean, for all that I think Liz Truss um, and co don't want to be interventionist and they don't really like telling people what to do or, or even, I, I dare say, being particularly helpful to people. I think they kind of want the market, the sort of the market to take care of itself. Residential property is different. It's it, it, it's at the heart of everything that, that a lot of people care about, work for. Um, Agreed. It's, an awful it's lot probably of, the most emotional thing that you, you asset that you can have, really, isn't it? Well, that that plus the banks are, are still very much geared into it. So yeah. um, and and not not in the same way that they were in 2007. But so I'm not sort of saying it's Northern Rock all over again. But you know, there's still a lot of lending to that sector. So will the government try and step in, do something new, innovative, or that they've tried before? Um, you know, we have seen mention of mortgage guarantees coming back. Um, does it help? Don't know yet, but um, it, it might. And I certainly do think they're not going to sort of sit idly by and watch people get evicted from their own homes. So I mean, wait and see. do you think there's going to be a significant dip in property prices? Um, depends what you think of as significant. Um, I, 20, 30%? I, mm, that's probably, I think that's too harsh, actually, to be completely honest. Um, and I'll try and sort of lay out why that is. Um, first history, um, you know, for all that the, the financial crisis in 2007 and 09 was, was, a, was a real crisis, um, it, I think house prices dropped 18% peak to trough in that period. Um, the, 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 the downturn before that was 1991, 92, and that was minus 12%. So um, there's, there's barely any precedent for minus 20%. There's not really any modern day precedent for minus 30. So, so mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it can't happen, but it, it'll look, it'll look substantial and quite shocking in, in comparison to history. Um, it's also worth, you know, mentioning that we're all talking nominal numbers here. If you put inflation into the mix, you know, inflation yeah. wasn't high in 2007. It is high here. So we, we effectively a, a minus 20% fall is minus 30% in, in sort of real money terms. Sure. Um, so again, that, that's going to look pretty stark even at 20. Um, and a few other mitigants to just mention, you know, we, we've talked about the mortgage market and how everyone has a mortgage. Actually, um, for the last sort of seven or eight years or so, more homes are owned outright in, the, in, in England than, um, than are actually owned with a mortgage. So while there is going to be stress and there is going to be pressure, it's not going to be felt across the piece. It's going to be felt uh, very much on one side and probably not even half of it. So it's going to be quite asymmetric. It's going to be... Which, does, which um, doesn't feed in well for the disequilibrium if, it, if wealthier people uh, have outright own their properties <laughs> well exactly <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's the, yeah. there's an awful lot of wealth in these properties and i suppose that that's the second order thing right do and and i think i've i've seen somewhere that home ownership is the sort of the most um the, the best indicator for whether someone votes conservative or not mm-hmm. um you know so so again are, are is the conservative government going to sort of let house prices fall 20 percent and and see their own their own sort of constituents um lose a substantial amount of their wealth uh, i don't think they'll sit idly by so yeah sort of sure. ties back to the earlier question doesn't it what about commercial property what sort of a temperature check on that at the moment how's that doing and that, that's obviously going to be in a lot of open-ended property funds and a lot of REITs so how how's that faring um so well it in terms of how it's faring right now again the answer is kind of okay um and, and there's two there's two sides to the story as well. Um, and I'll get to those two sides in a second. But but you know, if you look at property indices 
kind of year-to-date numbers. They're probably they were probably up seven eight percent in the first half of the year and maybe down two or three percent since then that's the sort of that's the mood music so so you might say well they've they've sort of hit a peak and have, have turned around but they haven't actually sort of shed an enormous amount of value yet um unfortunately i do think that there is a bit of value to be shed from from the market uh, and, and i think ultimately i think it happens again across uh, across subsectors, I don't think there's anywhere that I would say is sort of totally immune. Um, and the reason I say that is it, it is a more rational market and the people buying into it and, and holding it and selling it are looking at things like the, the sort of the risk-free rates that they can invest money at for free. Um, you know, if, if the Bank of England base rate goes to four and a half, five percent, which is not outside of some people's predictions, um, can you realistically justify buying any property at sub four? Um, I don't think, I think the answer is no, you can't, unless that property has some incredible sort of specific story associated with it. Um, that it just doesn't make financial sense. So I do think that the yields, which probably are averaging just over 4% for good quality sort of near prime property, um, they kind of have to move out as long as you think that swap rates and, and base rate predictions are, are more or less accurate. Um, so that is going to be painful. Um, what I would say, there's two mitigants to that. First of all, um, they don't have to move in lockstep. You know, at the moment you're buying, or say say you go back to sort of the beginning of this year, you were buying 4% property against a sort of sub 1% risk-free rate. So you had a sort of 300 basis point plus margin on it. Um, that margin doesn't have to stay. That can contract. And I think it probably does because people sort of view income slightly different to sort of capital appreciation. And it, it, it sort of, it, it's allowed in the market. Um, and you've also still got rental growth because that's the other side of this market. You know, take, taking the temperature of the market, the investment market is looking a little bit ropey at the moment. The occupational market um, and the sort of capacity for rents to grow and, and offer some this CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Will rents continue to grow and will demand sort of outpace supply? I think the answer is yes. Sort of similar for good quality office, certainly in 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 London and, and central London at least. Um, you know, there's a lot of pe- people asking if we work from home, does this market go to the go to the wall? Uh, so far, it hasn't. Uh, and if anything, rents have been growing because it's it's not a case of everyone just sort of getting rid of all of the office space they can they can get away with. It's it, it's a bit more nuanced than that. So. Yeah, it's not all doom and gloom, um, but it's uh, it's not an easy one. What about REITs? I mean, are they in significantly better shape than open-ended funds? I mean, share prices, I think we, we spoke about earlier on, have been a bit depressed recently. I mean, what's happening in, in terms of the relationship between share prices and NAVs? Well, um, yeah, I mean, they have been, I mean, I think I would say they were very depressed, frankly, certainly on average. Um, few interesting remarks. I mean, first of all, uh, well, interesting to me anyway, first of all, there's a, there's a quite a big breadth across the market, um, you know, to, to sort of pick out some examples, a company like Tritax Big Box, which owns large industrial sheds, you know, led to people like, um, well, some in some cases, supermarkets, in some cases, Amazon, and you know, that sort of big branded uh, merchandiser, um, you know, their share price is down something like 40% year to date. 
um, supermarket income REIT, another reasonably large um, REIT out there, which just owns big supermarkets, you know, the sort of edge of town, large box supermarket, um, again, led to well-known tickets. Um, they're down about 10, 15%. And, and I ask myself, well, what's, what's the fundamental difference between those two companies? Um, because I don't know that there is a huge one. Um, you know, there's, they're not identical, clearly, but it's not, it's not night and day. So, so that's a little bit weird um, and something that maybe needs to be uh, investigated further. Um, but look, the, the health, I mean, you know, it's hard to say that a market that's down 35% is in good health. Um, what I would say is that they've probably taken their medicine early um, and on average, the companies look like they've sort of that the share price has priced in um, a sort of a reasonable bad case. Um, and just to say one more thing on their health, um, the vast majority of these companies are not carrying too much debt, which is another sort of a big difference from the last time we went through this type of thing. Sure, um, I, so I, I wanted on... to actually follow on on that. I mean, how, how much of an issue is gearing among REITs? To you, not not too big a deal. Uh, it's less than it has been, um, and again, it's not it's not universal. Um, but if you wind back to 2007, um, you know most REITs were going into the crisis unwittingly, um, or perhaps not fully wittingly, um, but with a sort of an LTV number in the sort of low mid 40s. That was kind of convention at that point, um, and, and an awful lot of those guys went through it and ended up doing sort of rescue rides or fire sales of, of assets that they didn't really want to accept the prices of. Um, that's not going to be widespread this time around. Uh, I, I say, uh, I, I can't predict it with full confidence, but I feel reasonably confident saying that, you know, the average REIT is starting what, what I think is going to be some sort of downturn, um, at a number closer to 30% LTV. And that gives them an awful lot more protection. Um, there are a couple of names out there and I'm not sure I really want to name and shame them, uh, on the record here, but um you you can find them without too much difficulty i, I would be asking serious questions of anyone who is thinking that you know 45 percent plus leverage is is acceptable in the current environment because i think that they run the real risk of, of having some of those awkward conversations that that um, everyone else learned the lesson of um last time around sure and i, I suppose a, a spike in interest rates is doubly bad for those companies as well uh, absolutely. I mean, most REITs have got a degree of fixed, um, fixed sort of pricing to their interest rates. Um, so that, so that's some protection. Um, but that that sort of fixed eight doesn't last forever, and it's again, it's not universal. Um, it's it, it's it's complicated. But yes, you're you're right. It, it can't help. Yes. So I mean, as a fund selector in in this space, are are you seeing any opportunities? Um, well, yes, uh, there are opportunities. Um, and, and what I kind of fall back on is what, I'm, what I've sort of indicated earlier on in all of this, which is that actually the, the closed-ended market appears to have repriced or priced in something that the open-ended market hasn't. Um, and, and I think that there's an awful lot to be said for, for, for what, that, what that means, what the implications are. Um, you know, there's there's REITs out there that are trading at sort of potentially sort of 50% below their last NAV. Now that that last NAV is too high, it's out of date, but the next one isn't going to be 50% lower. Mm. Um, so, so just you know, thinking about that, there the, there do look to be opportunities there. Um, I mean, I, I, I've um, I've said before, uh, I don't mind saying again that the company Seagro, which is the largest REIT in the UK. Um, 
perhaps because of its size, has been hit harder than just about anyone else. I think that that looks particularly compelling. Um, but you know, it's not the only good name out there. Um, and again, that's not that's not sort of investment advice. It's just yeah. something that you should go and, and maybe think on if you're looking for ideas. Um, in the open-ended space, it's it's a lot more difficult. But the, the question that I think needs to be asked is um, sort of what are you buying for? What are you going to be comparing it against? And uh, and and how long are you going to sort of own it for? Because um, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me, and this is not a firm prediction, but it wouldn't surprise me to see some of these funds sort of go minus 20% in terms of their sort of peak to trough figures. Um, sure. But a few buts on that. First of all, that might take two years, during which time you might get a decent amount of income from it anyway. So, so that's that's significant. Mm. Um, they're carrying cash, so they should outperform a benchmark that falls in step with them because they're less um geared into the market that is sort of less than 100 percent beta by by default um and you know you sell it today um which you, is tempting um you have to be confident that you can you can call the bottom and, and get back in at the right time um and that the fund isn't isn't suspended when you try are there any other funds that are sort of particularly attractive to you on your hit list at the moment um so we've often been um, we've been advocates for um, what we call the hybrid um, uh, property uh, sort of approach, which um, there's a, there's a uh, fund uh, now run by Columbia Threadneedle called Property Growth and Income. There's mm-hmm. another fund run by um, Time, which is called Property Long Income and Growth. Um, both funds, I mean, they're different and they have big differences, but where they're similar is that both own sort of two-thirds REITs and about one-third direct property exposure. Um, and you know, we think it's kind of got the best of both worlds. You've got liquidity that comes from the REITs and you've got low volatility that comes from the actual property. And, and, you know, those two things don't sort of, um, they don't go to zero, but, um, but the risks sort of very much, uh, stay low. And there's a sort of a, a sort of classical economic theory behind that, but, um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it, it looks sensible. Um, and, and the other sort of bonus you kind of have is that, they're more geared into the REIT market than, than the property market. And that's where, uh, as a rule, there looks like the slightly better value. So um, you know, those funds are uh, are open-ended. They're a little bit different. Um, and I'd certainly sort of say they're worth a closer look today. Great. Well, Ollie, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, and like, like I said before, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. 